you can see, <clears throat> a familiar, familiar passage, but we're going to uh, use this passage to highlight and be reminded, and, and uh, we've been led already in our worship in this thought, just that we're being reminded that God is our salvation. He has captured us, and he has given us his resurrection life for us to live out every single day. So God's word says this, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now we ask that we would be reminded of your power in calling us to life in you. May we uh, see you and may you... Uh, your voice permeates every aspect of our lives so they can be touched by our identity in you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure we all can remember <clears throat> those times when we were kids playing outside and you heard the call of your mother that it was dinner time or another family member perhaps and it immediately uh, sparked your hearing. You could have been playing with friends and doing whatever, cars passing, chainsaws going. You heard the voice of your mother calling your name. Why? Have you ever thought why that happens? Uh, there's this weird effect called the cocktail party effect that seeks to explain that why we hear our names in crowded places. Our brains are always acquiring information. They're always taking information in. Even when we're not responding to it, our brains are smart enough to tell us not to respond to everything that it's coming in because we really would be frazzled. Uh, God's helping us out. Now, when somebody says our name, uh, a deep part of our brain is alerted. And it's the part of our brain that has to do with our identity. This is why even when we're sleeping and somebody calls our name, we wake up because it, it alerts something deep inside of us to hear our name. It also matters who's saying your name. Uh, studies have shown that we can pick out a person's voice with whom we are familiar with, a parent, siblings, spouse, kids. We can pick out that familiar voice within two words, up to f just four syllables is all it takes. This is, why, uh, this is why you hear your full name better, too, probably when you're in trouble. It's also why you hear your baby cry, because you know. This morning, we will consider with wonder and awe the calling of God for salvation. And when, you know, in, in 
when our kids were young, I used to explain to them that, you know, dead mom's responsibility was to keep them, we had a coffee table that I had described this to them, we're to keep you around here. And so the rules of our house and the rules that we have and for your obedience are to keep you uh, in, inside this boundary because one day God's going to call your name. And if you're in here, you're going to hear his name. If you're outside of that boundary, you may miss it. You won't respond to it. So our, our heart is to have you. We want to keep you in here. So the rules that we have and the boundaries, they're to keep you within that place that God, when he calls your name, you will say, here I am. Use the, the story of Samuel. Here I am, Lord. When, when we, when we, are converted, when we are regenerated, when we trust Christ for salvation, God has called our names. And he calls his children by their names to be saved and enter into his glorious, loving, selfless existence as he experiences himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the passage that we've read is... It gives us a physical demonstration of what occurs spiritually when Jesus calls our names for salvation. He calls with resurrection power, and he gives us spiritual life. And there are these distinct elements within Jesus' calling of of Lazarus that we can apply to our own experience, that there's deadness, affection, and life. We're going to go through those uh, as we go through the the message, but the reminder... The reminder of what God has done in calling us to salvation is to remind us under the it's to remind us of the banner under which we live. When we place our faith in Christ, we are saved. A phrase that we don't use very much anymore, I think. Saved. We are saved from the punishment of our sins, and we are saved from the pesky nuisance of our sins. We are set free to enjoy and love God, and receive his love. Now, when we have spiritual life, sin no longer rules and reigns over us. God now rules and reigns over us. And what sin seeks to destroy and distort, God brings rescue and redemption. We now live, church, if we are genuinely converted and put our faith in Christ, we live now forever in resurrection life. Do we live it? See, God's powerful work, here's our big thought, God's powerful work upon us awakens light in us, life in us, so that Jesus' light and life will be known to us and through us. But we first have to recognize that we are, just like Lazarus, we're dead. And the the theological expression there is that we are dead in our sins. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God's loving rule and authority, they immediately experienced that spiritual death, that separation from God's fellowship that eventually would succumb to physical death. But spiritual death is the fallout of, uh, of their separation and our separation from God's loving authority over our lives. We feel, we feel the death in our relationship. We feel that spiritual death all around us in our relationship with God, in our relationship with others, in our relationship with ourselves. We feel the the distortion. We feel the destruction. 
For the wages of sin is death. Whenever there's sin that's reigning and ruling in us and around us, we feel the effects of that separation with God and others and ourselves. And then, just like Adam and Eve, we try to hide from God's presence. They ran and hid themselves. Then they tried to cover their shame. That's in relationship to ourselves. We, we have this broken relationship with ourselves where we're trying to cover our own shame just to get rid of it so we don't remember or, or we're never reminded of the fact that we have consequences to our sins or punishment and penalty awaiting our sins. And our relationship with others is that we just blame everybody else just like Adam and Eve did. Now there's a dominion. There's a dominion and a rule and authority of sin, and it came from Adam. Romans 5.12 helps us understand this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. When your son or your daughter, as a baby, when you said don't touch and they gave you that look, And then they touched it. That's the evidence of what Adam and Eve passed on to every one of us. When you knew, you knew, you you know exactly what you're doing. You little cute thing, but you are corrupt. You are corrupt down to your core because we all are. You see that look, and then we all have that look when it comes to getting what we want. So in our deadness in sin, there's a dominion, there's a domination, a rule of sin, but there's also... There's an inescapability of that death. Just like physical death is inescapable for all mankind. And no matter what scientific and technological discoveries that can help us live uh, fruitful lives and better lives, there will never be a drug or a machine to keep us alive forever. Because death awaits every man and woman. It's inescapable. We are, we are all affected by spiritual death that is inescapable as well. We are under a spiritual bondage to sin. We obey it because we think it will bring us joy in life. We look out at the landscape of our lives and we say, well, I think that will bring me joy and that will bring me pleasure. But really what we're looking for is a freedom from the sin that keeps on attacking us inside of us. We believe the lies of sin. And the picture of Lazarus dead in a tomb shows It shows us how dead we are in sin. We are bound by sin, and we are blocked by sin. We have brains and lungs. Our brains think and our lungs breathe out of the effect of the curse of sin. Uh, We're like those marionette puppets that have strings attached to them. All of our joints are tied and directed by sin. Ephesians 2, Apostle Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead, dead, dead. Incapable and inescapable in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you were You all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul's saying, in your deadness, the spiritual death, not a physical death where you can't move, you're certainly moving, but your choices are following after passions that are are geared toward our flesh, not toward God because of the brokenness that we have 
from our first parents. And our situation is very dire in our sin, in this deadness. Nothing we do will free us from the curse, the bondage, and the domain of death. Our entrappings in sin cannot be removed. We're bound up in it, just like a physically dead person cannot will himself alive or work himself alive. We cannot spiritually work ourselves to salvation or will ourselves to salvation. We are in a dire situation. And the effects of our sin has created a barrier between us and God that is insurmountable from our end. And when we think about our wills, we, in the state of our deadness in sin, we have a free will, but the freedom of our will is continually, it's governed by sin. So every free choice that we make is a selfish, sinful choice. It's not until God awakens us that we, we are freed from the dominion of that pesky nuisance of sin, always telling us what to do, convincing us that this is the right way to go. It's when God frees us, he actually, he's the one that frees our will completely. See, before we have a constrained will, but when God acts upon us, we then have a freedom of our choice to look at Jesus and say, oh, Yes, I want you. Sin will always block out the light of Jesus. Satan himself wants to block out the light of Jesus. But God is the one that comes to us and says, turn the light off. Turn the light on for you. Turn the light on for you. Turn the light on for you. And we look and we see. That's the only way we can see. But what we have in this deadness is a Savior, a God who is deeply moved with affection. And that's what we see. Uh, just to take that, that first few verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians that I just read, just like the next set of verses, we have the, the biggest but that is in the Bible, and it's in Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, he's the one that steps in. What is insurmountable for us and from our perspective, God's the one that looks at it and says, I got this. I'm going to do it. See, but God, look, Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He wants to show resurrection life in us to then show it through us to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. God shows up in our context when we are running headlong away from him and we are doing what we think is best for the course of our lives, and we actually are looking at God saying, God, if you're on my page, my, my life would go a lot better, but uh, you're, you must be absent because you don't make my life easy. See, God comes to us when we're running in the opposite direction from who he is, and being free from any external constraint. He is not bound. He's not even persuaded by anything that he sees. God being free from any external constraint or persuasion, calls out to us. And he calls our name. Because he loves us. 
No moral perfection in us has gotten his attention. No physical appearance, no, no physical beauty or moral beauty has captured God. And we get in that, we, we live like that. We think that, well, if I look good enough, then God will, he will choose me if I, if I look good enough physically, if I do all the right things physically, or if I, if I look good enough morally, God will have to pay attention to me. But that's a lie of sin. Because that makes salvation something that we participate in. When the Bible's very clear in, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, God's the one that comes and gives us the grace and the faith to believe him. He's the one that comes and he says, I want you to know me. He's not pressured. He's not persuaded. He simply says, I want you. To which we should say, And we can be that kid that just keeps on saying, why, why, why? And God, see, he never says, because I said so. You know what he keeps on saying? Because I love you. Why? 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 He can say it in different languages. He, he can say, I love you forever. He doesn't get tired of it. But we somehow think that God has been wrong that he really doesn't know us really for who we are, and so he really made a bad choice perhaps in choosing. Now that's the wonder and awe that comes with thinking, like, God, you, you chose me? Why? We're affected by that. We often, we often don't connect God's affection for us to our salvation experience. Like we see God's love for other people, and we know as he's got love for the lost, he's got love for those that are, that are suffering. We, we fill in those categories, but we, I think a lot of times, have a hard time understanding that it really does love me. Just a few verses before this moment in John chapter 11, John recorded everybody's favorite memory verse. John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Very good. When everybody says, uh, pick a memory verse, <laughs> Jesus wept. It is the shortest verse in the Bible. But the impact of the statement can't be lost in the fun of quoting the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, wept in empathy with his friends. He didn't weep because he missed his friend Lazarus. It may have been part of it. Jesus knows he's in heaven. Can you get Lazarus' perspective here for a second? Like an angel had to come to Lazarus and say, Lazarus, you need to go back. Why, why, why do I need to go back? They have Jesus with them. Why do I need to return? They have Jesus. He can, he can comfort them. That would be fine. No, it's your, your sisters won't stop crying. Everybody just, you need to go back. You think he wanted to go back? No. But Jesus, so Jesus wasn't lonely for his friend. Like, yeah, my life's incomplete. I really need Lazarus back with me. He's God. And he didn't have to tell somebody to roll the stone away either. <laughs> I love when Jesus does that stuff. Roll the stone away. Because he could have done like the force. He could have tried any which way. He, he had the all-powerful. No, he wants people to participate in what he's doing. That's why. And that's why he says, I'm binding. But look. Jesus looked upon the crowds with compassion, with love, before he fed the multitude. Jesus looked at the, the young ruler 
and loved him and told him, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. All of these are expressions of his love. We often, we often picture God's sternness toward us while he demands our obedience rather than the tender, merciful God in which, and the tender, merciful hold that he keeps us with. God, he doesn't hold us with iron hands. He holds us with tender hands. I think we often wonder if we'll get hurt. You know how uh, when we interact with people, there's something that we keep back. We reserve something of ourselves as if we're interacting with somebody and they have a hand behind their back. If either they're, they're going like this, they, they're lying to you, or they have something that they're hiding, we are, we're suspicious of secrecy and deceit in our relationships. And we bring that into a category with God and as, if, as if God is holding something back from us is what Satan tempted Eve with. He's not giving you all of himself. He's holding a hand behind his back and you don't know what's there. So we interact with God our Father as if there's still some secrecy and maybe some deceit perhaps that he's going to bring our way rather than understand that he comes to us with open hands. In the military, they teach uh, the military to stand with their hands in front of them rather than behind because you can hold a weapon and hide a weapon behind your back. Nobody will see it. So, so as, a, as a demonstration of, no, I'm, I'm unarmed. The hands are in front. But listen, when God holds us, he's got open hands. But guess what? There's something on his hand. Look at Isaiah 49. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. He's got our names on his hands. That's the tenderness and the mercy with which he holds us. We have to, we have to incorporate this in, in the fact that when we live for God, when he comes after us, he's not reluctant. Like, man, you did it again. I knew I shouldn't have chosen you, but I'm stuck in this deal, so I just have to see you through. That, we project that upon God. He's coming to us saying, I love you. And it's, it's a great love. And just like God initiated his call to Adam when he said, where are you? He came to us and he said, where are you? He also said, who are you? He initiated his call to us to make us alive with his son and set us in a position now. We don't have to work to attain the position. He has given us a position with his son, right next to his son. Not because of what we've done morally, or physically, simply because he says, I love you, and I want you to live a resurrection life. And our third point is that we, are been, we have been delivered to life, and this is a powerful call. God's power is displayed by bringing dead things to life. In, in the case of Lazarus, it was a physical dead thing brought back to life. But in our lives, we all have the checklist of things where God, we've looked at something and said, that thing is dead. That relationship is dead or that opportunity is dead. We have looked at those things and said, dead. And God came through a miraculous power and switched it. And he brought it to life. And he restored and he redeemed. God loves bringing dead things to life because it shows the greatness of his power. God's power was proven by bringing Jesus back to life. God calls our names with that powerful call. And when he calls our names, 
We are guaranteed to respond. We will respond. Hey, check with me. I'm going to balance this in a second, but let feel this. His calling to salvation is uh, what theologians call an effective calling. When he calls to us, we respond to him. His call frees our wills from the constraint of sin so we will embrace Christ. It's as if uh, he gives us the Y and the E and we, give, we say yes. He gives us, he gives us the first two-thirds of the, of the word and we're grabbing onto it. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. When God calls their names, they will come into my fold. And he said, oh, this is just huge. This could be another sermon all by itself. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Those are Jesus' words that God brings, God calls, and those whom he calls respond to him, and they come in. J.I. Packer says this, As the outward call of God to faith in Christ is communicated through the reading, preaching, and explaining of the contents of the Bible, the Holy Spirit enlightens and renews the heart of elect sinners so that they understand the gospel and embrace it as truth from God. And God in Christ becomes to them an object of desire and affection. Left up to ourselves, church, we will not love God. We haven't figured him out enough. We haven't said, oh, I have an angle to where I figured out how to love God. I figured him out. We love sin too much. And he comes to us, and when he calls our names, we respond to him. And it's all him, so nobody can boast. We are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not something that we've brought to the table or figured out. So nobody can boast. Everybody gets to stand on the same level ground saying, why me? And God booms his voice. He says, because I love you. That's why. We will not choose him if left up to us. He's got to come after us. Now, we still have to choose him. This is where Wayne Grudem is very helpful. Listen to this. It is important that we not give the impression that people will be saved by the power of this call apart from their own willing response to the gospel. Although it is true that effective calling awakens and brings forth a response from us, we must always insist that this response still has to be voluntary, a voluntary willing response in which the individual person puts his or her trust in Christ. Yes, we have to choose him. But just, just understand how much God overcomes so we can choose him. Scripture says no one does righteous. No one's righteous, not even one. They're just open graves. That's all people are. But the glory of when he comes to us, he calls our names and he gives us faith to respond, we respond. And we keep on responding. We are made alive. An old theological word used to describe being made alive was quickening. And it referred to the first moment that a pregnant mother felt her baby move inside of her. A quick experience. God called our name when we were dead in sin and made us alive together with Christ. This moment is unique to you. Because God has personally sought 
you out. Each of us have a different experience to reflect the unending imagination of God to bring us to new life. We might have particular similarities, but we don't have the exact same stories because God is saying, just like he, he dis displayed his imagination with all the creation, he's displaying his imagination and calling each one of us by name so we know that he called us individually. Remember Lydia, Acts 16, 14, one who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. John Wesley, who was the, the founder of the Methodist, leader of the Methodist movement in England, then later become, became the Methodist church, he described the moment of his conversion by saying that his heart was strangely warmed. All of us have that type of experience when we feel God's call upon us. We respond to God's call by placing our faith in Christ. And it is actual faith. Like we, we give him everything. Our faith is, is then the first fruit of God's work upon our hearts. Just like we see that look in our child's eye when, when they're about to disobey. There's another. God, when he, when he does that, we understand what he's done and we choose him. And all, these are also unique to our experiences. Because every one of us has different people that we heard the gospel call through. Every one of us has, we have a, a line of people. There might be some overlap with some similar people, but God doesn't use just one person. He uses many because he wants people to participate in him calling out their names to say, come and be saved to know me. He wants us to hear his voice calling the names of his people to return to him to, to be saved. And the gospel call, it's given through those that he still calls. See, his call for us for salvation wasn't a one-time event. It was a one-time event that now has lasting effect. So in essence, God called our name and he keeps on calling our name. And we've got to be able to recognize our own that, that little trigger mechanism in our brain so we understand, God, that's my identity that you're talking about. You're talking about who I am with Christ seated in heavenly places. Our God speaks tenderly over us, calling us by name so we continue in resurrection life. See, up to ourselves and the, and the sin in our flesh that still remains and that battle between flesh and spirit where our spirit knows the right thing to do, wants to do it, leans in, but we find ourselves going back to the flesh over and over and over again. God calls to us and says, come, come, Jesus, come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. There's resurrection life. He wants us to continue to experience that resurrection life. A big passage from Isaiah 43, but very helpful. Verses 1 through 7, but now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. This is when Israel is saying, God, where are you? Our enemies keep on winning. Where are you? And God's doing something in them. He's, he is. He's refining them. He's refining their faith because they keep on going after false, uh, uh, false idols and lies. And they, they think they can go after those false idols and still serve God. He says, that's not, it doesn't work that way. So he's refining their faith. And this is how he comes to them. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. 
You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. All right, let's pause. We love those promises. Where does the promise fulfillment start? I have called you by name. So in the midst of fires and rivers, we've got to hear God calling us name, our, our names tenderly, saying, I'm with you. Verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. See the connection between his creation and his call? He brings us into fellowship with him. So then we are then secure in his everlasting arms. Our identity as believers, those who have placed our faith in Christ, our identity is secure in Jesus' resurrection life. If we ever doubt, God, is this real? Do I feel you? Look at the resurrection. Because the resurrection makes it all true. It makes everything that Jesus said true because he said he would rise and he did. And he lives now forever making intercession for us. He, he, he's calling our names. No amount of sinful death could no amount of sinful death could ever keep us away from God. He loved us too much. And I love the promise that he will not cast us out because it tells us that no amount of sinful death can kick us out. No amount of sinful death was too insurmountable for God to overcome, to, to, to secure us in his presence. And no amount of our own spiritual sinful death will, will ever make him say, you don't belong here. That's still a lie from the enemy. We, we can't, we don't work our way into heaven. We can't work our way out. God simply says, Trust me, the righteous shall live by faith. And catch this from Haggai 3, uh, 2, verse 23. Is God telling us this? On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You know what? We wear wedding bands. Not to tell everybody that we don't have any fun anymore. We finally got tied down. See, all the cliches that we use for a marriage, we think God's that way. All right, uh, when you're young, you feel you grow up in church. You feel like, man, I'm just gonna, I need to go out, kind of just have my experience. Then I'll come back to the Lord. There's no guarantee we'll come back. But God tells us. Just like we tell the world, I'm telling the world, all of my fun now in life is with my wife. That's what I'm telling the world. And I'm reserving myself for her because that's the, the glorious union that we now experience. 
But now, God says to us, I'm taking you, and I'm telling everybody, you're mine. You're mine for the glorious experience of the relationship that you will have in my presence. As God does that wonderful, selfless love over and over, he's never tiring of it, and he welcomes us into that experience of joy. That's why Jesus says, and Paul, complete my joy. Jesus says when we are in his presence, his joy is completed because then our joy is experienced. That's selfless love. But I would ask this, two things. One, well, one, it's one question, two application points. One, the question is this, do you hear God calling your name? Do you hear him calling your name? If you are still tied up in your sin and you have never repented of your sin and come to Christ for salvation and trust him completely, hear God call your name right now and repent of your sins and trust Jesus for salvation. You cannot fix yourself. And God's not wanting you to fix yourself. He wants you to trust him. So I ask Please, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, if you are not saved from the penalty of your sin and from the, the, the peskiness of your sin, repent today. Hear God calling your name right now and trust Him. If you have had that experience, I would ask, do you hear Him calling your name? Do you hear Him say, I want you to experience resurrection life all the time? If not, what, what's, what's coming in the way? What is, maybe it's a thought process, maybe it's an activity, an action, a habit that you need to be rid of. God, I need to get this away from me in order for me to hear you call my name every day. Because it's calling us to participate in that gospel call by first recognizing and living out the resurrection life that he's given us. So what in your life needs the, that touch of resurrection life? Because God's calling your name to experience it. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Don't fear. I'm with you. But it's the same surrender. God, I trust you. I trust you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of illumination that your spirit gives us. God, I ask that you would please bring people to your throne of grace to experience your mercy in their time of need. God, we're always needing to hear you say our name. We need you to say our name. And may we hear it in that tender, lovely, merciful voice that you always come to us with. And God, I ask that resurrection life would be the result of hearing your voice. That we would be renewed and we would be refreshed and we would keep on going in resurrection life. Seeking to minister that to everybody we come in contact with. God, I pray also for the, the anticipation and expectation uh, of dead things becoming alive because of the life that you've given us. Replicate 
Jesus' resurrection replicated all over our lives, God, in our minds, in our actions, in our relationships, resurrected again. Prove the resurrection in all of those categories.